Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I've got a joke for you. What happened when the butcher backed into the meat grinder? He got a little behind in his work. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner parties. You just got a joke from Samantha Irby, author of the new book of essays, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. That'll break the ice. We will hear more from her later. Plus, we'll speak with Paul Feig, creator of TV's Freaks and Geeks and one of the minds behind the new Amy Schumer flick, Snatched. And a dapper dresser as well. That's right. You'll have to take our word for it. Problems with audio. Uh, Also coming up, the musician Danger Mouse provides a dinner party soundtrack. Emily Post's great-great-grandkids tell you how to behave. And Rico has stew for breakfast. And it is delicious. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Trump is in Israel today. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia announced they had signed $109 billion in arms deals. Are you in the Guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Sarah Cliff. She's a senior editor at Vox and the co-host of their policy podcast called The Weeds. Mm. Sarah, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I am going to be talking about a study that shows the American tree population is moving westward. Oh, just like the rest of the American population. Everyone's moving to L.A. (laughs) I know. Everyone wants to be famous. Just what we need, more traffic. (laughs) This time cars driven by trees. Great. So it's not, you know, they're not picking up their little roots and packing their suitcases (laughs) and heading for Silicon Valley. but, But essentially you're seeing saplings sprout up in new locations that is moving the population westward. And scientists, they don't really understand why this is happening. Why would you leave Manhattan and move to New Jersey? That seems like crazy <laughs> behavior. They needed a little more space. You know? <laughs> exactly. They needed a yard. Do they have any ideas, though, about what's happening? It must be climate change, right? I would assume that would be... So that's part of what's going on. They're also seeing that trees are moving northward, and that part makes sense, right? Like, they're seeing pine trees move a little bit farther north because pine trees really like cold winters that you might get. But the westward thing, all the researchers, they say that was a real surprise. They don't think that part is climate change. All right. So they're going west, but what's replacing them? Yeah, in the east. Are there fish coming from the ocean? <laughs> what are gonna... Well, not much. Essentially, we're seeing, and this is really part of like the tree mystery, is that the trees are dying out a little bit at the very eastward tip of their population. But then you're seeing new trees sprout up westward. Uh, so they're marching west, basically. Yes, like um, Groot from... Um... Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> yeah. Aww, I was thinking adorable. the electric slide. I was thinking like my Aunt Jeannie <laughs> running to the other side of the dance line. Oh, that's good too. But in slow wow. motion. Very slow motion. Sarah Cliff, thanks for the small talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history's a geyser, regularly erupting booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1935, baseball fans started staying up a lot later. Michelle Philippi's on vacation, so Tommy Andres of our sister show Marketplace tells the tale. The brightest idea in Major League Baseball first occurred in the minors. This was back in the Great Depression, when baseball fans didn't have a ton of discretionary income to spend to see games, and often had to work through the afternoon when games were played. Minor league attendance tanked. So, faced with extinction, the miners made a big investment. They outfitted their parks with electric lights and played games at night. The concept was, pun intended, a hit. 
the first night games brought in up to 20 times more fans than the average day game. Though one catcher did complain that shadows from the lights made it look like the pitcher was throwing half a ball. Five years and some technical improvements later, a major league team took a swing. On May 24, 1935, the lights went on at the Cincinnati Reds' Crosley Field for the major's first ever night game. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt threw the switch. The Reds beat the Philadelphia Phillies that night and then launched into a dismal losing season, finishing 31 games out of first place. Even so, thanks to their spiffy electrified field, they more than doubled their ticket sales. Soon, major league ballparks across America took the hint and started lighting up. Except, of course, for Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs. For decades, folks in the neighborhood battled the team's plans to illuminate that park. Only grudgingly acquiescing in 1988. The Cubs are still the only major league team to play most of their games in daylight. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with Molly Wellman, mixologist and owner of Japs since 1879. That's what it's called. It's a Cincinnati cocktail bar. It is named one of the world's top bars by Esquire magazine. So no pressure or anything. But Molly, what did you decide to make? So I have this really great drink. It's called the Kitty Burke. The Kitty Burke? Yes. Kitty Burke was this burlesque dancer that hung out in Cincinnati during the 1930s. And not only was she an entertainer, but she was a baseball fan. And she loved to go see the Reds play at Crosley Field. And she would heckle the players. She'd say, you can't hit worth a darn. What are you doing? So one particular day, she's in the stands and she's heckling. And the guy's like, well, if you think you can hit better, come on down and show us. No. So she did. Yes, she did. She in her little flowy little chiffon dress took the bat out of the guy's hand and started to hit the ball. The first woman to ever hit in a major league baseball game, although it did not count because she wasn't on the roster. Yeah. Um, but isn't that cool? That is the best. <laughs> Absolutely deserves a drink. Yes. So what is in this thing? I'm, I'm hoping something spicy and peppery. It feels like that would be appropriate. Well, you would think so, but being summer drink, and this happening in July 1935, I decided to go with gin. Okay. And to make sure that we're uh, not covering up the beautiful parts of this gin, I just wanted to add little bits of delicate flavor. So okay. I put cucumber into a mixing glass, okay. uh, and I muddle that all together. Right. And then I add mint, two bar spoons of triple sack. RNG. And then the gin, and then ice, and then I shake it, and then I strain it into a glass and top it with soda water. It certainly seems drinkable at the at the ball game. I'm not sure they're probably not serving this at the Reds Field anytime soon, but it seems like a good baseball drink. I wish they would. <laughs> Hopefully they'll hear this. I have a, I actually have a question. Are the Reds doing well this season? They did not do well in 1935. They're doing much better than 1935 this year so far. So so we don't we don't need to bring in Kitty as a pinch hitter or anything. <laughs> no. Molly Wellman, owner of the bar Japs since 1879 in Cincinnati. And by the way, Molly also told me the Reds gave Kitty Burke a team jersey 
and she mm-hmm. would strip it off as part of her burlesque act. Hmm. Yeah. God bless America. It's our national pastime, mm-hmm. everybody. All right, folks, we don't have pictures of that, but we've got the recipe for the Kitty Burke on our website. That's right. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Time to eavesdrop. Writer Samantha Irby is known for her hilarious personal essays and deadpan storytelling style. FX is turning her memoir Meaty into a TV show. Today, we overhear a tale from her latest collection. Hi, this is Samantha Irby. I have a new collection of essays called We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. And this is about how I have attempted and failed to try to lose weight. I recently started yoga, and by started, I mean I've gone to two classes in the last few weeks. I hated the physical therapy I was doing for my broken foot that never healed, so my podiatrist suggested yoga. Gross, right? The only class I could find that's one, cheap, two, near the train, three, at a time I could actually make, and four, not taught by a person I know in real life, was for pregnant women. And I signed right up. The flyer at Metropolis Coffee Shop advertised the classes incredibly easy, laid back, no pressure. I guzzled my scalding coffee. I hadn't put enough sugar in because a handsome stranger had been standing next to me and I didn't want him to know I'm a child, and studied the faded pink sheet of paper. I figured it would be my kind of party because the word easy was underlined five times with a thick black sharpie. I mean, nothing says easy more than a pregnant lady could do this. If I saw a pregnant woman skydiving or bungee jumping or performing open heart surgery, I would think smugly, hey, I probably could do that. I didn't hesitate or think twice until I walked in the room in my comfiest outside pajamas and found myself surrounded on all sides by gestating bellies and nervous pre-class chatter about back pain and morning sickness. Oh, right, these women are actually pregnant. I was so busy thinking about how no one would ask me to touch my toes that I kind of ignored the whole carrying another human being aspect of this physical and spiritual practice. In general, I've got enough stomach jibs to pass for early second trimester if anyone decided to really get up close and inspect me, but I decided to keep a low profile and chill in the back, not saying a word. If there's any place where staying mute with your eyes on the floor is appropriate, a yoga studio has got to be it. I love that first class. It was air-conditioned, and the yogini used the word gentle about 80 times, which is music to my joints. My foot felt good, my self-esteem wasn't shattered into a million pieces, and everyone appeared to be having as hard a time as I was getting up off the floor. I went back a couple of times, but nobody likes an outsider. Seriously. Skinny people want your fat out of their clothing stores. Straight people want your gay 
out of their bars, and white people want your black out of their presidency. So my empty womb and I were scared to admit that we weren't packing no embryo. I'm not savvy enough to keep a good lie going. I can't keep rolling into class and not talking. Or growing. Plus, one of these days I'm going to forget where I am and ask one of these girls for an emergency tampon, and the whole lot of them will realize what I've done and line up to beat the crap out of me. Samantha Irby reading from her brand new essay collection called We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. That piece was edited for time, and there's more where that came from on her blog, the title of which we are not allowed to say on the air. Google it. But wait till after our show, because coming up, we chat with director Paul Feig, who's known for directing hit female-centric comedies and for dressing like a million bucks. Unfortunately, he lives in the wrong town. It's what I call the tyranny of the casual out in L.A. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your audio guide to the best in arts, food, and culture this week. I am Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, the musician Danger Mouse and his collaborator Sam Cohen DJ a Francophile's dream get-together. Oh, yes. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Paul Feig. He is beloved for creating and producing the cult favorite TV show Freaks and Geeks, along with his friend Judd Apatow. In addition to its excellent writing and direction, the show was known for launching some huge Hollywood careers, including those of Jason Segel, James Franco, and Seth Rogen. Not bad. Good eye. But these days, (laughs) Paul's probably best known for his feature films, most of them R-rated comedies featuring female heroes, like, for instance, Bridesmaids with Kristen Wiig and Spy with Melissa McCarthy. His latest comedy is in the same vein. It's called Snatched, and it stars Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn as a mother and daughter duo who get kidnapped while on vacation. (laughs) Now, when I met with Paul, he was wearing what has become his signature outfit, which is a dapper suit. I asked him, what's up with that? It's what I call the tyranny of the casual out in L.A., which is this this sort of enforced, like, oh, you don't get it. Here's how actually what happened was, I mean, back after we did Freaks and Geeks, I started taking meetings because people like the show wanted me to work on other things. So you go to these meetings, but you meet with the suits, quote unquote, the suits. Yeah. The heads of everything. So there you are. And I remember sitting on the couch and they always put you on this like really low couch where your knees are in your face, <laughs> you know, and it just, you know, I go, I don't like the power structure here. Like they look powerful and I look like the artist that they're just sort of, you know, prescribing things to. So I went away from that and I always used to wear a suit and tie when I was a kid. I used to love it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it again. I'm in my, you know, mid thirties now. I'm going to mm-hmm. You know, fairly successful. Let's start dressing like the enemy, basically, I thought. And so went out and got a bunch of kind of cheap suits at the mall and started going on my meetings. Well, the minute I started going on my meetings, for some reason, a memo went out around the town that they didn't want to be the suits anymore, so they were going to start dressing like the artists. Oh, yeah. So I get into a, a meeting, and I'm in my suit and tie, and they're all wearing jeans and T-shirts. <laughs> and yeah. it was crazy. But but here's the thing. This is the hubris of Hollywood. It wasn't like, oh, we feel weird now that we've abandoned our uniform. They immediately took on this air of superiority, of, and it was like, Oh, look, look at the rube who doesn't know yeah. that you know, he's not supposed to put on his Sunday go to meeting clothes. <laughs> well, in a way, in this in the movie Snatched, you kind of are a suit in the sense that you're a producer on this project, not a writer <laughs> and director, as you sometimes are. Mm-hmm. But for a while, every other movie seemed to be about a, quote, man child. 
<laughs> and now Amy Schumer in movies like Snatched and Trainwreck kind of embodies a woman child. You know, she's an adult but hasn't really matured. Mm-hmm. And the disconnect is funny. It's awkward. It's sad. Why do you think this theme is such a staple of comedy? Like, why does it work? Well, I mean, just uh, Arrested Development in general, be it man or woman, is I think it's relatable, weirdly, because I think most of us kind of don't want to grow up, mm. you know, and, and, and we struggle with that. And so... It's a tough line to walk because audiences can get very impatient with somebody who can't get their life together. You know, when Katie Dibble first pitched this project to me, even before she wrote it, and then when she wrote the script, I remember going through going like, God, how do we pull this off? Because it is the hardest thing to kind of get an audience to sort of get behind the, you know, the Arrested Development kind of character. Sure. So the minute that we found out that Amy was interested in it, it was like, oh, that's perfect because she's like kind of one of the few people I know who can pull it off, who can be sort of bratty, and yet you find her kind of endearing at the same time. And, you know, when we like when I did Freaks and Geeks, the, the fun about that is in your teens, you're allowed to be a mess, and even kind of into your 20s, you're allowed to be a mess. The minute mm-hmm. you get into characters who are in their 30s and they're a mess, the audience gets much less patient. <laughs> oh, so do humans, Paul. I'll tell you about yeah. that another time. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, but, you know, well, another, another thing that's tricky, well, in Freaks and Geeks, there's a tenderness that is juxtaposed with some raunchiness, which is a natural kind of thing that happens in high school. Kids are a little grosser mm-hmm. than, than most. Mm-hmm. But in, <laughs> in this movie, as well as Bridesmaids and some of your other R-rated movies, and these are R-rated movies, you know, there are mm-hmm. some jokes that are, are pretty, pretty raunchy and raw. I'm wondering if there's mm-hmm. a joke in any of your films that you thought maybe went too far and in retrospect you would maybe <laughs> have excised. <laughs> no, nothing that got in. There's definitely jokes we shoot that were like, ooh, yikes, that was too much. But yeah, the thing is, you, you, you really don't know. I mean, I've had so many times where people will be very offended by a joke that I think is completely innocuous and then at the same time they'll just love a joke that I'm like that's way too hardcore we can't pull that off <laughs> yeah. so I mean that's why we do so many test screenings because you know the process that we do is early on we put together a cut of the movie and then we screen it for people off the street like you know 300 people and we record their laughs and then get their feedback and then we do that every like two to three weeks for months so it allows us to go like well those jokes didn't work let's flip in these let's try this let's try that it, it is kind of mathematical the way you work it just because you know we're, we're making movies to try to entertain the largest swath of the audience that you can and so you know you really need to make sure that stuff works because as one of my editors say you never want the premiere to be your first test screening. It's funny to think that there are all these people who attended screeners who've seen versions of your movies that are even grosser and more profane scenes than <laughs> ended up in the final cut. Like I was at the Grove yeah, yeah. last week and man, I saw Kristen Wiig. I don't, I don't even know what you probably cut left on the cutting room floor. I'm telling you, there were some cuts that were extremely uh, gross. I mean, it, Kristen, even when we were, were putting that dress shop scene, they, you know, we're going to shoot it. She was very nervous about it. And, you know, Judd Apatow and I said to her, look, we're going to shoot everything. We're going to shoot stuff that's too much, but we will not put anything in the movie that is not good. Yeah, there's that bridesmaid scene where all the bridesmaids go and they have bad Brazilian food for lunch. And then they go to a bridal shop, and we can all imagine what happens next if you haven't seen it. Yes. Megan, are you okay? You got food poisoning from that restaurant, didn't you? No, I had the same thing that she had, and I I hope you're fine. Oh, my. Okay. Oh, no. But there's a delicacy even in directing those scenes and assembling them, I imagine, because 
you know, there was a back and forth about not making the characters seem too pathetic or, or playing them completely for laughs and somehow walking that edge of having empathy for them as well as being yeah. able to chuckle. What are some things you do to kind of get that sort of cut? Well, you have to face it just from the very beginning, from the writing. The mistake is to go like, what's the, just the most outrageous thing we can do just to shock the audience? You're really on thin ice when you do that. But what you do is go like, okay, here's the thing we want to illustrate. And with that scene in particular, it was like, okay, here's a woman who's in a battle with a woman who's much richer than her. She doesn't have any money. So she's going to take them to a restaurant she can afford, but she's going to kind of pass it off like it's a great place, even though she kind of knows it's not a great place. <laughs> you know, and then there's going to be consequences to this. and. You know, to us, the funniest thing was always not, okay, they're going to be just throwing up and going to the bathroom everywhere. It was, what happens when everything is about to go wrong yeah. and everybody around you is trying to pretend it's not happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So then <laughs> then the fun is to go like, okay, now how can we illustrate this very human and relatable point in the most outrageous way possible? Well, look, it's time for the Paul Feig is a champion of female-led comedies question. Ah, Are you ready for that? Bring it on. All right. We were just talking about Bridesmaids, which had a nearly all-female cast, and it was really successful. And then there are lots of other movies you've made that feature women. And what's great about them is that they don't feature typical Hollywood stereotypes, like the woman trying to get pregnant before it's too late. I wonder, with the success of Bridesmaids, have you felt a freedom to write more honest characters? Yeah, I mean, it comes to my my obsession in storytelling is I love female friendships and I love professional women. And I always feel like those are the two things that just never got shown in movies. Because like you say, it was always a romantic comedy where it's about finding a guy, you know, or the thing that I always hated for so long is that Hollywood always moralized with these movies in which it was basically the story was, you've got to choose between your job or your happiness. Which I always found so offensive because I know so many women who are professionals who are happy. They're happily married. They have a family and they love their work. You know, but but it was always this weird kind of judgment that was coming down from the storytellers. You know, look, I, I love a good romantic comedy and I'm hoping to do some of those too. But I never want that to be the main motivation uh, for any female character that I portray. One of the the actors that you're closely associated with is Melissa McCarthy. And I think, and I think a lot of people agree, she's one of the funniest humans we have. Yes. Can we talk for a moment about her Sean Spicer impersonation? Oh, the greatest thing ever. We all watch it on Saturday Night Live and we all giggle, but you're a professional, a writer, director, former comedian. What is it about her that makes that impression sing? I mean, it's just so funny and it feels so right. It is so take no prisoners and it's also just spot on for what sketch and caricature and comedy should be, which is you take the things that are the most <laughs> either irritating or funny or surprising about a character, and then you blow them up. But what's so funny about her is just the rage is so funny. And I mean, Melissa is, nobody can be meaner and angrier funny than Melissa McCarthy. And she's found the perfect conduit because Sean Spicer, you know, even he's even, you know, he's backed off. Honestly, he's tried to behave himself so much, but he laid the groundwork when he did that very first press, press conference, conference where he was defending, you know, the attendance of the inauguration. And so, he, you know, his goose is cooked after that because once you do something you're known for, that, that becomes a thing we parody endlessly. All right. Well, I just have a couple more questions 
questions for you. This is just a small thing. When I went to see Snatched, uh, there was this little trailer before the movie where the two stars, Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn, thanked the audience for, quote, coming to the movies. <laughs> Do you know what I'm speaking yeah, of? Yeah, I've seen that. No, I love it. Yeah. I, I've never seen anything like that. Were, were you aware of it? And like, what is what was the rationale behind that? Um, I was not aware of it when it was being done. I only knew about it afterwards. I love it because, you know, the art of people going to the movies is is slowly <laughs> slowly yeah. dying a little bit. I mean, unless it's for the giant tentpole superhero things. But we engineer these movies, these comedies, for an audience. I mean, that's why we do so many test screenings, and that's why we record laughs, and we listen to them back in the room and hear, oh, where's where it going up? Where's it going down? Where we didn't need to let the energy you know, flag? Where do we have to... That? And so the idea of if people just go like, oh, I'll just wait till it's out on you know home video you lose that great experience of sitting in an audience and hearing those laughs. That's every much as important as being in a big theater to see giant special effects. And, and honestly, I think it's more important because the more we lose that group experience and that connection to humanity, especially through laughing and positive moments, you know, that we just become more and more isolated. So mm. we do need to thank the audience who do show up and in hope that they'll keep showing up. Paul Feig, he produced the new movie Snatched, starring Amy Schumer, and you can catch a glimpse of his sartorial splendor on our Instagram feed. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. And by the way, Paul is the featured guest on the latest installment of a series you can only find on our podcast feed. It is mm-hmm. called Dinner for One. You will hear one him... One-on-one conversations. Oh my God, we're smart. Uh, hence the name. Mm-hmm. You will hear him talk about Freaks and Geeks and Gilligan's Island. To hear that, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. So we've met our guest of honor, taken a swig of history. Let's bestow some music on this party. Let us. And here to help our musician slash producer, Sam Cohen, who has worked with everyone from Shakira to the Grateful Dead, and Brian Burton, also known as Danger Mouse. He is also half of the band Gnarls Barkley. Sam and Brian produced a series of songs inspired by the TV series The Man in the High Castle. Each one is a dark, eerie cover of a tune from the 50s or 60s. The album's called Resistance Radio. They dropped by our studios a few weeks back, which explains why their playlist is designed to give your party a certain je ne sais quoi. This is Danger Mouse. With me is... Sam Cohen. Hello, hello. In honor of the French elections, which just happened, thought we'd throw... A French dinner party. A celebration, I guess you could say. So here's that soundtrack. So we're at our French dinner party, and everything's black and white, and there's a couple making out in the corner. (laughs) I'm the American, and I'm going to put on a French record. And the tune I'm going to put on is Francois Hardy. I have horrible pronunciation, but I think you say sorry, je. Even though I don't know the words, you can tell that it, you know, it's coming from the same DNA as like big Edith Piaf, Frank Sinatra kind of ballads, but then it has this like younger generation cool to it. So I sampled Francois Hardy on a Norris Barkley song called Open Book. 
her song was called uh, Traume, I think it's called. And make and sure you cleared it. I definitely, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, that's true. I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> so next up on our dinner party playlist is a song by Jillian Hills. It's a cover of a zombie song called Leave Me Be. always one of my favorite zombie songs. I never heard this version before, but running around looking at lots of different French songs uh, and compilations and things like that, I came across it and I, I thought it was great. Leave Me Be is just a love song about just if you're going to take off, if you're not, if you're not going to be in this, then just leave it alone. Don't keep coming back and messing with me. So Jillian Hills was an English actress who was in the movie Blow Up, also in Clockwork Orange. So she's English, but she's singing in French. The English played kind of a big part in the French sound anyway. I always thought that cool bass yeah. tone was, was purely French, and then I found out it's all English session musicians. Now I'm going to commit a French faux pas and put on a Canadian singer, Joni Mitchell, <laughs> and play her song, Free Man in Paris. Which uh, is about a trip David Geffen took to Paris in the early 70s when he was still closeted and finally had a chance to kind of be himself. Ideal in dreamers and telephone screens. You listen to the words knowing that story and it's, it's all there. She's talking about how much he's doing for everybody, how you know hard he's working on everyone's careers, and sacrificing having like that kind of comfort and intimacy in his life for fear of how people would react. I was a free man in Paris. I felt unfettered and alive. There was nobody calling me up for favors. And no one's future to decide. It's a really isolating thing, and it's cool that she fully embraced who he was all the way. It's like a beautiful love song to a friend. Our last pick is from the album Resistance Radio, and the song is uh, by Sharon Van Etten, and it is a cover of the song called The End of the World. We must be drunk now because we're putting on our own stuff. <laughs> we're putting on our own music, yeah. <laughs> Sharon Van Etten, she came onto the project really early, and when she did this song, it really let us know the potential of it, and that she could have been a really big vocalist singer back in that time period in the in the 60s or maybe 50s or I guess any time. Why does the sun go on shining? Why? does 
Sam Cohen, along with Brian Burton, a.k.a. Danger Mouse. Their new album, Resistance Radio, is out now, and it's kind of like if Philip K. Dick made a mixtape. It's very cool. Right now we're going to take a quick break, but in just a minute, we will hear about modern etiquette, ancient cuisine, and we'll hear a new song from a French band that shares their name with a city in Arizona when the Dinner Party download continues. Flagstaff? No. It ended when I Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your hour-long arts and culture atlas of everything you need to know to win your weekend. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, Emily Post's great-grandkids tell us there's no three-second rule for champagne. Aw. Sigh. But first, <laughs> it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And, Brendan, we all know my adopted hometown of Los Angeles has some smog and traffic problems. You mean plagues when you say problems. Agreed. It's, and it's then there's bad. the whole earthquake thing. That is a problem as well. But here's what makes all of that not matter. Mexican food. True. Of which we have an insane bounty, and we have for decades. And that's the subject of a new book by the James Beard award-winning food writer Bill Esparza. It is called L.A. Mexicano, and it's a guide to the city's surprisingly unsung Mexican food history and restaurants, one of which he took me to the other day. It's called Birriaria Nochislan, and it's run by a family that hails from the Zacatecas region of Mexico. They specialize in one thing, the braised goat stew called birria. I asked why he picked that spot. This is one of our handful of genuine franchises from Mexico. You know, we have maybe a half dozen of these places that I know of where they have the original restaurant still operating in Mexico, and this is a, a branch or an outlet. And to me, these places are very special in Los Angeles, and, and they're underappreciated by the press, and people should be celebrating. You know, it's like when, it, when a new ramen joint with 100 branches in Japan comes here and they put one here, people go nuts. But when a family opens a second restaurant from Mexico in the United States, no one even talks about it. Why do you think that is? That seems crazy to me in the current food climate where we're always looking for the new cool thing from afar. Well, I, I think that there's a lack of understanding about Mexican cuisine, certainly among you know the press. And there aren't really a lot of people writing about Mexican food or talking about it that actually know the culture and know the cuisine. But yeah, this is one of my stops. I mean, I, if people are visiting and they want to have a Mexican breakfast, this is one of the places I would take them. This is a morning dish? This is a morning dish. Goat stew is a morning dish. Yes, we take our hangover cures very seriously in Mexico. So, I mean, you know. Maybe it's more of a brunch dish then, you're saying. Um, you might not get up super bright and early to have this. Oh, no, you haven't gone to sleep, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a weekend morning dish. Um, while we're waiting for this birria to show up, I do have to ask, what is Zacatecan food? I mean, you go around town, I see a lot of Oaxacan food. Uh, you and I have actually eaten Yucatecan food in the past. I've never heard of Zacatecan. What characterizes it? The food of Zacatecas is just very simple, really scaled down. So even their birria is very simple. They don't have lots of condiments when they do it. It's pretty much like the goat, a very simple seasoning and really hot, hot, spicy chile that they serve with it. It's, it's really simple. My understanding, too, is that it's kind of flat plains, so there's, there's not a lot of agriculture. It's a little bit more meat-centric, is that right? Yeah, but then it's also the center of prickly pears in Mexico. They do have cactus. They do have some um, agriculture there, but, but definitely it is the center of Mexico for prickly pears. You can buy them from street vendors in all different colors, you know, four or five different colors. Why do you think Zacatecan food is so little known in Los Angeles, you know, probably one of 
if not the Mexican food meccas of the United States? Well, the people from Zacatecas came really early. You know, they were, they were one of the large groups that came. My grandparents' generation, they, a lot of people from Aguascalientes, Zacatecas, Jalisco came to the U.S. And if they opened restaurants, they didn't necessarily open Mexican restaurants because there was a lot of discrimination against Mexican food and me everything Mexican. So, for instance, El Cholo, one of the oldest Mexican restaurants in Los Angeles, had to call themselves a Spanish restaurant. And even um, El Carmen on Beverly Boulevard opened as a Spanish food, like Spanish cuisine. And, and if they did open Mexican, people's idea of Mexican was a certain way. It's, it's actually very rare to find something like this place here at uh, Birria Nochislan where they're a specialist. Because, I mean, when you get birria in Mexico, you go to a specialist. You don't go to a, a restaurant that also happens to serve that dish. You go to a place that exclusively does that, and that's their specialty. That's their artisan craft. All right. So the birria has arrived. And it's interesting, because it's a stew, I imagine that it would be served in a deep bowl, but it's actually being served in a fairly shallow dish, kind of in a, in a pool of sauce. <laughs> well, this is like a lot of preparations in Mexico where you can have this wet or dry. So you can actually have the birria itself without the, the, the sauce. I, I, mean, I think it's best to have it this way here. And again, this is a stew, but it's being served with tortillas. Is the idea that I'm supposed to make this into a kind of a little taco? Yes, you can put it in a taco. You can tear little pieces of the tortilla off and grab it. That's like, you know, the way, way I grew up doing it. Yeah. So show me how you like to do this. The great thing about Mexican cuisine that I like is you get to uh, be your own little, like, sous chef. We have to add our own onion. That's right. We have a dish here. There's a side of onions. We've also been given some yeah. limes and cilantro. I, I think a lot of people get crazy on, I, I take it pretty seriously, you know. It's like, okay, how much onion do we really need, you know? You're putting a bunch of onion on there. You did not ask if I wanted any onion. You have to. Oh, you can't have this without onion. What you, that's part of the flavor. We have onion, cilantro, lime, a chile de arbol salsa. Yeah, nice and kind of soupy salsa. I like to tear a little piece off like that. So you've got like a tortilla chip-sized little yeah. square of tortilla in your hand. And grab. And you grab a bunch of wet, stewy goat meat, which has been peppered with this onion, some cilantro, and lime juice. And I'm going to take a bite. Oh my God, that is fantastic. Um, it is really delicious. It is fall off the bone tender, obviously. It's kind of shreds of uh, goat meat in there and an incredibly flavorful broth kind of thing. What's in this broth, do you think? That would be a secret. You know, Rocio looks really nice and sweet over there, but she would get mad if I revealed her secrets. Uh, You're more than welcome to come and enjoy it whenever you want, but that recipe is... It's top secret. <laughs> that is kind of like the secret of the, the abuela. Like my grandmother never would show me recipes because she didn't want me to be able to do, do it at home. She wanted me to always come to her house. So this is it. You got to come to the Moreno family's house here and have their birria if you want it. That's kind of blackmail. No, it's good business. Writer Bill Esparza and Rosio Moreno, owner of Birriaria Nochislan in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. Bill's new book is called L.A. Mexicano. And by the way, we should acknowledge many say that Zacatecans took the birria tradition from their next door neighbors in Jalisco. Mm. That did not make it taste any less delicious to me. It sounded pretty delicious. And yep. folks, if you're not already hungry enough, we have photos of that dish at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, and now 
Let's learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave and returning to answer them this time are etiquette royalty. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. They are the great-great-grandkids of etiquette queen Emily Post herself, and they're the co-hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette, which lives up to its name. The brand-new edition of their etiquette manual called Emily Post's Etiquette, the 19th edition, just came out. And Lizzie and Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Mazel tov, too. We've been saying the 18th right? edition for a while. It's been years. This is an exciting it, it moment. It is. It's time for the 19th. So we thought we'd ask you about some new additions to your etiquette manual. And one seems a clear sign of the times, the use of MX, pronounced mix, mm. as a form of address. Can you tell us about this? Very simply, mix is a gender-neutral form of address. The Oxford English Dictionary accepted mix into its its next printing, and we ran with it. It's like Mr. or Miss. Now, you, if you were addressing an envelope or an invitation, you would put MX? You got it. If you're unsure of what the person uh, you are writing to prefers... As their as their gender identity, then you would use mix. I do think about it when I encounter that stuff on, you know, government documents. You have to select a gender, yeah. and you uh, have to fill out a form of address often. And so maybe eventually this will seep into the yeah. national consciousness. It's it's appropriate that you bring that up because governmental forms are one of the places that these types of pronouns often first appear mm. for exactly that reason. Keep an eye out for that on your passport application. Um, all right, so uh, let's turn to some listener questions with this new book of etiquette. Let's Let's break it in. Let's break in edition 19. Here we go. The first question comes from Anonymous in Manhattan. Anonymous writes, The company I work for is sending two employees on a business trip to Thailand. One of the employees happens to be my ex-husband. The other is going to be either me or another woman. She doesn't want to go because she has a two-year-old kid she doesn't want to leave behind for days. But if it isn't already obvious, I also don't want to go on an international trip with my ex. <laughs> Who has the better excuse for not going? Oh, I feel so bad for Anonymous. <laughs> the new parent's going to come in on the, the side of the two-year-old mother. Yes, Dan, you have a new child. I say, suck it up, face the ex. Uh, the emotionally damaged single person will say, please don't force people into situations with their exes. I wow. think that's like... I like how etiquette is so malleable. Come on. Um, my guess is that your company is simply going to make the decision and yeah. whoever it is they choose needs to be the person to go. And I, I would leave it up to that. These are both valid emotional reasons for not wanting to go. Mm-hmm. I would also say that the child care, depending on the, this coworker's home life and work situation and availability of child care, can definitely be an issue. But clearly, this is a job where travel is expected. Yeah. And clearly, the divorce happened and neither employee left. So, you, you know, if people it. are aware of the circumstances in both these cases, your company is just going to make the decision. And I think you got to roll with it. Oh, but the, the nightmare. <laughs> the nightmare. Oh, but. Could you imagine? Mm. Or a screenplay develops where they <laughs> fall in love again, things reignite, they they stay in Thailand, That's they decide true. not even to return to their jobs, and right. they open a mango shack. Mm-hmm. That sounds nice. It could also be a horror movie where they're both kidnapped and are forced <laughs> to like spend two weeks inside a cage. Or I was going to say, romantic comedy or psychological thriller? We don't know. Either way. More interesting than just a week at the office. <laughs> there you go, Anonymous. Here's something from Sam in Durham, North Carolina. Sam writes, I often wonder, is it okay for me, someone who does not need a wheelchair-accessible stall, to use a wheelchair-accessible stall? If it is my turn to use the restroom and a wheelchair stall opens, I feel like people behind me in line might get annoyed if I don't go in, but if someone who needs the stall arrives, I'd certainly regret it. It's nice of you, Sam. It is nice. (laughs) And it's really good etiquette. That stall is really there for a reason. It's there for 
people who need it. There is also that courtesy you're trying to balance in your mind, the practicality of sometimes it's the available space and there's sure. more people trying to use the restroom than there is available space. So I say you balance those two considerations, but you definitely keep your antenna out. You don't set up shop in there. You don't lay out the newspaper. And, um, but then that does beg the question, and I ask this, you know, without judgment, if there's a wheelchair accessible stall, does that mean someone who does need a wheelchair never has to wait in line? There are some different angles to this one in terms of, of you know, the idea is to not come across patronizing, to not come across as othering someone else. But I think if you are in that line and you see someone who could benefit from using that stall, I say, please offer it to them first. If someone declines that particular courtesy, I wouldn't get in an argument about it, but right. I would absolutely pay them that respect. Think of it as a, a new form of chivalry. All right. Our next question comes from Meredith in Salem, Oregon. Meredith writes, my daughter and I were on a family vacation. Down the hallway from our hotel room sat a very expensive bottle of champagne and an ice bucket and two glasses. The next morning, the champagne and glasses were still there, untouched. Is there any way it would have been okay to take the unused champagne for my own enjoyment? Uh, would the answer be different if impressionable young children weren't present whom I was supposed to be guiding morally? <laughs> Meredith, so, wow. Is this question about stealing a bottle of champagne? <laughs> yes, that is I, it. I don't know if we, are, we have an etiquette question about... It's like the, it's a version of the two-second rule. The champagne's been there for almost 24 hours yeah. and no one's drinking it. That's a crime in France, I think. <laughs> I, I say lifting champagne from someone else's room service is definitely a no-no. Definitely a no-no. Um, if, not... if you could get that person's attention and ask, maybe. And maybe that 12-hour, that 24-hour right. window starts to be territory where you might inquire. But um, I think the unopened part is the problem. The, yeah, what the... if it was open but three-quarters full? Mm. And then it's the next morning and it's still out front. And it looks like they put it out front maybe to have it be Look, taken away. We just want a way that we can get free wine. <laughs> can you make it okay? I, I'm going with the safety first etiquette angle on this one. In, in the spirit of not drinking poisoned wine, <laughs> Potentially roofied wine. I mean, come on. That's a real um, sad view of humanity. I'm, I'm very disappointed that there seems to be no way we can get this wine. <laughs> Here's something from Mary via our website. Mary says, no one covers their mouth when they yawn anymore. Uh, hold on, hold on. Thank you, Mary, for saying I know, hallelujah, in. Mary. Keep going, Mary, keep going, Rico. Mary Sorry. has a whole screed I think you'll appreciate, Brendan. She, uh, yeah. she says next, were they raised by wolves? <laughs> Why would anyone want to see the inside of their mouths, their dental oh. work or lack thereof, their adenoids, and their dirty tongue? I have <laughs> wow, no. Wow, I like Mary. <laughs> I have no interest in their gaping yaw. I feel like I'm the only tight-lipped person in a sea of orifices. Whoa, Ooh, there, Dr. Freud. That's different is, visual for you. Is there any polite way to tell these truly offensive humans to cover their mouths? Thank you, Mary, because it, it's often inappropriate to mention it in the moment. You don't have the standing to tell someone to cover their mouth, but it would be so nice if, if we did have the standing to give that direction. So we'll take this moment to okay. remind people everywhere, please. It can just be a little bit foul, a little bit gross of the body, but it's also a social cue. And be aware of both implications and effects on other people. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for your <laughs> wonderful guidance and congrats on the 19th edition. Thanks, guys. Take care. Have a great week. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, co-authors of the brand new 19th edition of Emily Post Etiquette. Don't sleep on buying it. Don't even yawn. Do not. And folks, as always, we welcome your etiquette questions and comments. So if you've navigated one of these situations, do give us a shout. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and hit contact. Contact. 
And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Next week, we talk to Damon Lindelof, mastermind behind TV shows including Lost and HBO's The Leftovers, Mm. which is racing toward its own series finale next week. To be sure not to miss it, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or via your favorite app. And now let's roll credits. Our senior producer is Jackson Musker. Our associate producers are Krista Ripple and James Kim. Our associate digital producer is Christina Lopez. Our engineer this week was Bill Lance. Emerald Douglas is our intern. And now, before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's parties. Nice work on the credits. French band Phoenix have been making ear-friendly international pop since they first met as teenagers in the Paris suburb of Versailles. Uh-huh. Their new album comes out in a couple of weeks. Here's a track called Tiam. Bon appétit, Amo. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right, we off the air? I think so. Nice. You're sure now Kai Rizdal did not see you steal this from his office. Meh, who cares?